The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the book of Exodus, in chapter 33, and reading from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, verses 18 to 23, in the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus. And he, Moses, said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a clift of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. We come back to a final consideration of this great and notable and most extraordinary incident in the life of Moses, the servant of God. We are looking at this as we have been looking at the whole chapter because of the instruction and the enlightenment that it gives us with regard to the whole general subject of revival and of God's manifesting himself at special times and in special circumstances to his people. Now we have seen, let me remind you of this, that the ultimate motive for desiring revival and for praying for it is the glory of God. I emphasize that for this good reason. The first reason for desiring revival is not that a large number of people may be converted. That is a motive, but it is not the first motive. It is not the greatest motive. It should never be the chiefest motive in evangelism. The motive is the glory of God and the desire to see God's glory manifested. It can all be summed up, therefore, in this one petition of Moses, Show me thy glory. And Christian people, if this isn't the deepest desire of our hearts this morning, there is something seriously and sadly defective in our whole position. I say that our chief desire at this moment should be with the world as it is and the church as she is, that the glory of God might be manifested amongst us and before our wandering gaze. And we have seen, therefore, that what God does in revival is to grant us that petition, this petition of Moses. We have also seen that he does it in an extraordinary manner. Moses says, Show me thy glory, and God replies, saying, Thou, canst, uh, thou shalt not see my face. For no man 
shall see me and live. But nevertheless, God is going to grant a glimpse of his glory. His glory is going to pass by, as it were. And Moses is to be given a glimpse of the back parts of God. Now that is precisely what happens in a time of revival. God's presence amongst his people is made manifest. It's a glimpse of it only. It's God passing by, as it were. It's the glory of God appearing and passing. But that's what it is. It's nothing less than that. It is this kind of glimpse of the back parts of God. And we have also seen that the great lesson which is always learned in every time of revival and of reawakening is the great truth concerning the goodness of God. Show me thy glory, says Moses, and God's reply is, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What happens, I say, at such a time in the history of the church is that the great character of God is made evident. His great attributes are displayed. His mercy, his long-suffering, his graciousness, his kindness, his compassion, yes, and his righteousness, and above all, his sovereignty, his sovereign majesty. The God who visits us and sends revival, and then stops it. It's all in his hands, and we bow to the earth before him as Moses did at the realization of his majesty, his glory, and his sovereignty. Well, now, those are the general lessons which are conveyed by a time of revival, a special visitation of God's Spirit, God, as it were, coming near to his people, and giving them this glimpse of his everlasting glory. There remains, however, just one thing for us to consider, because it's here and it's emphasized in the text. And that is the exact way in which this is done. The precise way, if you like, in which this happens. So we concentrate in particular this morning on verses 21, 22, and 23. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take my hand away, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now there we are told exactly how this vision of the glory of God, this sight of the glory of God, was given to Moses. And note the details. You can't see my face, said God. No man can see my face and live. But now I'm going to give you this glimpse in this way. Here is this rock by me. You are to stand on that rock. Then I'm going to take you and put you in a cleft of the rock. There is a cleft in the rock. I'll put you there in the cleft, protected as it were by the two sides, and then I will put my hand over you. 
as I pass by. Then after I've passed by, I'll take away my hand and you'll see my back parts passing along. Now you notice the way in which we are given these extraordinary details. But obviously, our concern must be with the principles that are here taught. And I want to suggest this morning that the principles that are taught here in these details are the principles that always govern every manifestation of God and his glory to his people. You go right through your Bible from beginning to end and you'll find always at every moment of revelation there is this same teaching given. The same principles are very clearly enunciated. So that what we have to do is to discover the principles that are taught in this particular action. And surely they're perfectly simple. There are just two main principles. The first is this. That there is a combination here of revealing and concealing. God is revealing, yes, but at the same time he is concealing. He puts his hand upon Moses. He puts him in the cliff to the rock. He's showing him something of his glory, yet he is hiding something of his glory at the same time, revealing and concealing. That's the first principle. The second principle is that at one and the same time, he is blessing, but also protecting. There is obviously this great element of blessing here. Yes, but at the same time, God is protecting Moses by putting him in the cleft of the rock and by putting his hand upon him and covering him. He is protecting him, as we see from the very account given, from his own glory. No man shall see me and live. So he's protecting him against death, which would be the immediate result of seeing God with the naked eye as he is. It's a great blessing, but it is also conveying this element of protection. Now, the jargon, of course, that is used in the schools about this is that this is paradox. And it is, of course, a paradox. It's the great paradox of the Bible. These four things are happening at the same time whenever God draws near to his people. Revealing and concealing, blessing and protecting, all happening together at one and the same time. You can't separate these things. And we must never attempt to dissect them from one another or to divide them from one another in some false dichotomy. Very well then, there is the great principle of revelation, if you like. And that is what actually happened on that occasion so long ago to Moses, the servant of God. This is history. This literally and actually happened. This wasn't a picture. Moses is recording sheer history, historical fact. Yes, it is history, but you know it's more than that. It's a kind of prophecy. And what I want to do this morning is to show you how it is a perfect prophecy of what has since happened and happened perfectly in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, what we have here in this dramatic and pictorial form is nothing but a kind of perfect summary 
of the great message of the New Testament. This is Christianity. Paul has put it once and forever in one of the verses that we read just now, the sixth verse, in that fourth chapter of Second Corinthians. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is Christianity. That is the whole meaning of everything that's recorded in the New Testament. That's the whole meaning of the incarnation and everything that has followed it. It is God revealing his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's a, a great fulfillment, a perfect fulfillment, in a yet more glorious manner of what God did here so long ago to his servant Moses. Now, before we come to work out the details, therefore, let me emphasize this central principle. It is the realization of this and the experience of this that really makes us Christians. What is a Christian? Well, it's an important question, isn't it? There are so many false notions current today as to what a Christian is. What is a Christian? How would you define a Christian? A Christian who says a good man. I know, but there are many good men who are not Christians. A Christian who says a man who's had a marvelous experience. Oh yes, but there are cults that can give people experiences, and they're very wonderful. A Christian who says a man whose life has been entirely changed. I know, but the psychotherapist can do that, and the cults can do that again. A Christian who says a man who's taken a decision. But you can take many sorts of decisions to be better and to live better and to join a church and to do a thousand and one other things. Yet clearly there are many people who have done all that and still are not Christians. Well you say a Christian is one who's had some sort of a vision, who's seen a ball of light or something. No, no, there are many people who have had that sort of thing but who clearly can't be admitted as Christians. They don't believe the very elements of the Christian faith. They've had all these strange and eerie experiences, have been conscious of some strange power coming into them and upon them. Oh, yes, but uh, you read books on spiritists, on spiritism, uh, written by spiritists and spiritualistic phenomena, and you'll find that they can reduplicate all that, and most astounding things uh, can happen and do happen. And it would be folly uh, to deny the testimony to such things which has been given by eminent scientists like Sir William Crookes and Sir Oliver Lodge and various other people. So I'm not prepared to accept any of these statements as being determinative as to whether we are Christians or not. What is it that makes a man a Christian? Well, surely it is this. It is the realization of the fact that God has given a revelation of his own glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts. What for? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A Christian is a man who believes that. A Christian is a man who has experienced that in a measure or to a certain extent. Now this is, I, th I say, the thing that constitutes the Christian. Not a change of life or habits or of behavior. 
Not merely being religious, not merely attempting to worship God. No, no. It is the realization that God has done this, has given this manifestation of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Very well. Having thus isolated and identified our principle, let me show you now then how the New Testament is but a fulfillment of what we read here. We can see it point by point. The first, here is a definite statement, no man shall see me and live, and it is repeated again, my face shall not be seen. Now the New Testament is equally clear about that. John 1.18, no man hath seen God at any time. And it's correct, it's true. The New Testament starts from that postulate. Here it is in John's prologue. He's introducing the message of his gospel. No man hath seen God at any time. That's why the Son has come. Or listen to the Apostle Paul putting it in writing to Timothy. In the first epistle, chapter 6, verse 16, he is saying, Who only hath immortality? Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen or can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Now that is, if you like, the preamble to the gospel. It's the essential first presupposition. That no man by searching can find out God, that no man can see God. He dwelleth in that light which is unapproachable. He is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Then we go on to the second principle. God then reveals himself in his own way. Now it is his way. He determined everything here on this occasion with Moses. Show me thy glory, says Moses. Now then, says God, I'm going to give you a glimpse. But it's got to happen in this way. And he determines it, he decides it, he brings it into practice, he causes it to happen. And this is still the truth. God is to be known only in his own way. There is no other way. There are people who say they can find God in their own way. But according to the Bible, that is a sheer impossibility. You can arrive at what you imagine to be God. You can have some spurious experience. Many things can happen to you. You know the power of, the, of, of psychology is endless and then there is all this other spiritist power that I'm talking about. But according to this book and its message from beginning to end, God is to be known only in his own way. And there is but one way. It is the way that God has determined and has planned. What is it? Well, now then, there it is in the case of Moses. Moses is placed in the cleft of the rock, and God's hand is put on top of him. Then the hand is removed, and he has his glimpse. What does the New Testament say about that? Well, here it is. I go back again to John 1, 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten that is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He has led him out. He has manifested him. No man can see God. Well, are we hopeless? No, no. The only begotten Son, he who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He's come to manifest him. That's the gospel. 
That is the whole of the gospel. That's the meaning of everything that he did. This is God's way of revealing his glory. So, you see, the Apostle John can also say this. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then let me give you a still more explicit statement of this. It's in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. Most important verses in this connection. Thomas, you remember, was in trouble because our Lord had said that he was going to leave them. And he said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. And Philip blurted out saying, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. That's all I want, says Philip. Show us the Father. You are saying, whosoever hath seen me hath, hath seen the Father. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Why are you so slow, he says, to understand these things? You say, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. But you've seen. He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. And again, you remember our Lord in his high priestly prayer at the very end, turns to his Father and says, I have glorified thee in the earth. There it is, quite plainly and explicitly. He has come to reveal the glory of the Father. And he's able to say at the end, I've done it. I have glorified thee in the earth. And so, you see, the apostles, when they now look back upon all this and announce their gospel and describe it, that is how they put it. I must mention it again, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined into our hearts to give, to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul has been able to say before that in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Listen to the apostle again putting it in writing his first epistle to Timothy. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, that it should be translated like this, according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That's what the gospel is. It is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That's the gospel. Yes, but before that it is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And the saving of sinners is but one of the manifestations of the glory of this blessed God. Or take it as it's summarized again by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. 
I'm anxious that we should see that this is the great message of the New Testament. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners uh, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. Who is this? He is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Jesus Christ is the express image of God's person. He is the effulgence, the brightness of the glory of God. Show me thy glory, cries humanity. And God says, I will show you my glory, but in my own way. And this is the way. In the face of Jesus Christ, in this person who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And so you see the aged Apostle Peter writing a letter of farewell to various Christian people. He knows that he's about to be put to death. And he says to them, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I'm going to go on reminding you of these things. You read in his second epistle, chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. For, he says, we have not declared unto you fables, when we declared unto you the coming and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't declared unto you, he says, cunningly devised fables. We are not writers of fiction. We are not drawing in our imagination. We haven't had dreams. We haven't seen things. We have not reported unto you cunningly devised fables when we declared unto you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus well, what then? Oh, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were with him, he said, on the mount in the excellent glory. And the voice came from the excellent glory saying, and we heard it, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Now, says Peter, after I've gone and after the rest of the apostles have gone, there will false teachers come in and they'll say this and that, don't believe them. Here is the record. He says, this is the thing on which you bank and base your whole faith and all your position. Not cunningly devised fables. We beheld his glory. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him transfigured. There upon the holy mount, and we heard the voice from heaven. Well, now then, you see, there is the New Testament fulfillment of all this, the New Testament counterpart of it all. And yet, you must notice, and I must emphasize, that the same paradoxical features characterize this fuller revelation in the New Testament as characterized the former incomplete revelation that was given to Moses at this juncture. Let me just remind you of these things. And is there anything more glorious or wonderful that a company of Christian people can do than just to remind one another of these extraordinary facts? What is the first thing? Well, the first thing I say is the concealing. I'm going to take you, said God, and I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand upon you. There is a concealing. That's the first thing. Have you ever noticed that in the New Testament? Have you ever dwelt upon it? 
Well, go, my dear friend, immediately to Philippians 2. And there you've got it all stated so perfectly for you. In Philippians 2, beginning to read at verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, there he was in eternity. He was in the form of God. He was God. He's the second person in the Blessed Holy Trinity. And his form was the form of God, the glory of God. He thought it not equal. He thought it not robbery to be equal, which means this. He didn't hold on to that. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's the cleft in the rock and the hand of God covering Moses. He didn't come in the form of God, no, he came in the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. There's the concealing. He is God. He's the second person in the Blessed Holy Trinity. But he came in the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He was found in fashion as a man. He came, says Paul, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the concealing. Still God, remember, in all his fullness, he hasn't left any of the Godhead behind him. That kenotic theory is a complete lie and a contradiction of what is being said. He didn't empty himself. What he did was to make himself of no reputation, which is a very different thing. He cannot empty himself of Godhead. That's a sure impossibility. God cannot cease to be God. No, no. What he did was this. Though he was still God in all his fullness, he made himself of no reputation. He came in the form of a man, though he was still perfect and absolute God. He was concealing the Godhead. He came incognito. Still the monarch, but traveling as a private individual. A Mr. So-and-so. That's how he did it. The concealing, the hiding. So the prophet Isaiah was given to see beforehand that he was to come in this way. He says, he'll come as a root out of a dry ground. He will have no form nor comeliness that any man should desire him. His visage, his visage is marred. That's how he came. That's how the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed and manifested in the face of Jesus Christ. The Son of God comes down to earth. How does he come? With blazing glory. No, no. Born in a stable as a baby in Bethlehem. There's the cleft in the rock in the hand of God. The concealing of the glory. The babe. The boy. The carpenter. The men who appear to be just an ordinary men like everybody else who was so tired on one occasion that when the disciples went to a town to buy provender, he sat by the side of a well and began talking to the woman of Samaria. 
A man, you say, and a very tired man, yes, but that's the concealing of the glory of God. It's the cleft of the rock and the hand of God, tired and hungry. Do you see him praying, praying all night, rising up a great while before dawn and praying? Why does he need to pray? He's the Son of God, co-equal with God. Yes, but the glory is being concealed. He has come in the likeness of man. He has made himself of no reputation. He has come in the form of a servant. And then one day I read of him, Jesus wept. What, God weeping? Oh yes, God. In the likeness of men, the word made flesh. The concealing of the glory. And then you remember that extraordinary incident that happened on that Mount of Transfiguration. He went up unto the mountain, took Peter and James and John with him, and he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became exceeding white beyond the brightest shining of the sun or beyond the brightest shining that a fuller can ever produce. He was transfigured, his whole visage, everything. Ah, you say, now at last they're seeing it in its fullness. No, they didn't. I read in the account of that transfiguration in the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke that... A deep sleep came upon these disciples. And that a cloud overshadowed them. It's the hand of God again, you see, concealing and protecting. They suddenly began to feel terribly sleepy and heavy. And a cloud overshadowed them, of course. The thing is still true. There they couldn't see the absolute glory and live. So they were covered by the sleep and by the cloud. And finally, look at him dying upon the cross. What is this? This, I say again, is the veiling of the glory, the concealing of this absolute glory and power. I needn't keep you. Charles Wesley has sent, said it all for us in the hymn that we've just been singing and which we should sing much more frequently. It's a tragedy that that's only sung at Christmas time. Veiled in flesh, the glory see. Yes, you can see it, but veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh, the glory see. Hail incarnate deity. What happened at Bethlehem? Well, this mild. He lays his glory by. Charles Wesley means this. Not that he laid the glory itself by, but that he laid the signs of the glory, the accompaniments of the glory. That's what it means by making himself of no reputation. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that men may no more may die. There's the conceiving. But let me hurry on. The next element is the protecting. It is not merely a concealing, but also a protecting. No man shall see my face and live, said God to Moses. So while I give you this glimpse of my glory, I've got to protect you. I've got to protect you against my own glory, lest it kill you. So he took him and put him in the cleft of the rock and put his hand over his head. He is protecting him, I say, against his own holiness, his own majesty, his own glory, his own wrath against sin. 
his own eternal justice and righteousness. Moses had to be protected while he was given a glimpse of God's glory and God's goodness. Because God is one, and all these various elements are in his character. You can't divide the attributes of God. My dear friends, need I keep you? We are going to a communion table. We are going to eat bread and drink wine. We are going to remember the Lord's death upon the cross on Calvary's hill. What was happening on the cross on Calvary's hill, I can tell you. It was just this. It is our being protected against the glory and the holiness and the righteousness and the justice and the wrath of God against sin. That is the meaning of the cross and the death upon the cross. Let me summarize it for you in the famous words of Augustus' top lady. He'd seen this thing so clearly, so he sang like this. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. And then he goes on. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar through tracts unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. His only hope, his only protection against the majesty and the judgment and the glory and the wrath of God is that Christ is the rock of ages and that he's covered by what he did upon the cross. The hand of God is upon him and he's safe. That's the meaning of the death upon the cross. It is this protection without which we would be undone. And so that is the meaning, if you like, positively of our being clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the hand that comes upon us. And again, top lady, you see, can put it like this. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. Why? Oh, he says, my Savior's obedience and blood hide, hide, all my transgressions from view. It's the hand of God upon us, hiding us, hiding our transgressions from view. And the result is that we need have no fear of the terrors of law nor of God. We are in the cleft of the rock which is in Christ Jesus and his righteousness, his hand of righteousness is upon us. There is the protecting, the concealing, the protecting. Ah, let me close by just reminding you of the revealing. For it wasn't only concealing and protecting that took place on that occasion with Moses. The object of it all was the revelation. And look at it in the case of our blessed Lord. I've said that he came and was born as a babe, yes, but you remember how it happened? This wasn't an ordinary birth. 
The archangel Gabriel is sent to a virgin. She isn't married. She's never known a man. But she's to produce a child. Ah, an ordinary babe, you say. No, no. There's a miracle here. There's a marvel. There's a glory about it all. It needs an archangel to announce him. Though he's a helpless babe born in a stable. The concealing and the revealing. Look at him in his infancy. He seems again, I say, just an ordinary infant, but he isn't. Certain wise men living in the East have heard something and they've seen a star. There's a star which announces this child and which leads to him. And they came and they worshipped him and they offered their gifts. Not an ordinary infant, this. There's something unusual here. Wise men come and fall on their knees and they adore him and they worship him. The concealing, yes, but the revealing also. Then listen to his words. He's now 30 years of age and he started teaching and preaching. I could take you through the whole of his life and illustrate this. I'm simply picking out the most salient features. He speaks for the first time in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. And this is what I'm told about it. They all marveled at the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. They said, this is Jesus. This is the son of Mary and of Joseph. This is the boy we've known, the carpenter. How does he speak like this? What is it? He's only a man. No, no. There's something more. They marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. Have you noticed that his miracles always led to the same result? When the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God which had given such power unto men. I read that when he healed the paralytic men, that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. I read again, They were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. This man, and yet not a man. Who is he? Who is this, they say? What is this? And then remember the transfiguration. And then look at him dying upon the cross. Ah, you might have argued that was the final proof that he's only a man after all. And yet you remember that the Roman centurion, looking at him and seeing him already dead, stood back and said, truly, this man, was a son of God. He's marvelous even in his death. There's something unusual. There's a glory even in his cross. And Isaac Watts has seen it. And so he sings when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory Died. There's a paradox. The prince of glory died. The author of life, says Peter, preaching later. The author of life you have put to death. Paradox, of course. Revealing and concealing at one and the same time. 
in everything, and especially there upon the cross, you see the combination of these opposites. The justice of God, but the love of God, the righteousness of God, and the mercy of God, the wrath of God, and his everlasting compassion, all have met together. Righteousness and peace have met together in this one person who conceals and reveals the glory of God. Think of the resurrection. Think of the ascension. Think of the appearances. His appearance to Stephen. He being filled with the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Then the appearance to Saul of Tarsus who had hated and reviled this Jesus. But then he saw him and said, Who art thou, Lord? The revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the King of glory. There, my friends, is the New Testament way of describing what we have in Exodus 33. What is revival? Well, I'll tell you what revival is. Revival is a period in the history of the church when the things of which I've just been reminding you become the greatest reality in the world to God's people. We believe them now, yes, but do we feel their power? Do we thrill at them? Are we moved by them? Do we glory and exult in them? Revival is a time when these things are made so clear by the Holy Spirit that the whole church is filled with this glimpse of his glory. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ, he said that the Holy Spirit, when he came, would glorify him. He said, he shall glorify me. He sent to do that. And so when he comes in exceptional power, the glory of Christ is made unusually plain and clear. It's his special work. And so you will find that in every period of revival, the hymns of the church and the prayers of the church are filled with thanksgiving and with praise. What for? For the glory of the Lord, and especially for his death upon the cross. The glory of the cross, the wonder of the blood, these things are the theme of the church. The Spirit coming in unusual power has given an exceptional glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't you long for it? Don't you long to see it and to feel it? Don't you long to know what it is to be almost overwhelmed by a sense of his glory, his majesty, and all the fullness of his goodness? Seek it, my friends. Seek it personally. Seek it for the church in general, not only in this country, but everywhere throughout the world. The need of the hour, individually and collectively, is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ.
Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.